Well, that's an outline of what I want to talk about this morning, and it is Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Before I do so, I just want to remind us where we have been. We have gone by beginning with the Beatitudes, and we noticed last week that we might have expected the wise Messiah to have begun with words like these that lie before us this morning, with an admonition to keep the law. But instead, Jesus, who is not only the Messiah, but the one who is prophesied in Isaiah to bring good news to the poor, began by pronouncing beatitudes to the poor in spirit. He began to pronounce beatitudes to the humble and to the meek and to those who were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And it's almost as though he was beginning by reaching out in compassion to those who were before him, who were destitute. And as time went on, he began to swing more specifically to his disciples, who we realized last week were like prophets who were bearers of the new covenant. And so when we looked at salt and light last week, we saw that Jesus was referring to us as distinctive people who had a mission to the world. And we were likely to face derision and persecution, much like the prophets who came before us. And that although salt and light had meaning in a number of senses, the primary meaning in the context seemed to be that of uh, ingredients for the giving of a covenant sacrifice, salt having been used in sacrifices and light having been the symbol of Jesus, the Messiah, bringing light to the nations. So here we are poised as the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and now Jesus begins by an important reminder. And I want to draw your attention to the outline this morning in which, this afternoon, in which I have offered um, a slightly different translation. Um, I tried to choose it as a way of kind of making us think a little bit differently about the passage, uh, and it's not in any translation that you'll be familiar with. Jesus said, do not suppose that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to prophetically culminate. For what I say to you is true. For as long as heaven and earth remain, not an iota, not a smidgen will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. In fact, anyone who sidesteps the slightest of these commandments and instructs others to do the same will be considered low in the kingdom of heaven. Alternatively, such a one who does and teaches them will be highly regarded in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness goes way beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees, there is no way you will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, if you have uh, been a Christian for more than a short period of time, you may have noticed a certain tension between Jesus here, who seems to uphold the law, and who's not prepared to take away so much as one tiny little ink stroke from the corner of a letter of the law. And Paul, who implies in several places that the law is passe, and that if anything, the law was harmful to us, it simply exposed our sin um, and our weakness, and it led people astray with a kind of a works righteousness. So uh, I want to do again this week what I tried to do last week, and that is just kind of summarize where the message is going before we get into the nitty-gritty. So the challenge today will be for us to reconcile the apparent contradiction between the teaching of Jesus in this passage, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, about the laws of the Old Testament being good and fully applicable to Christian followers, 
and what Paul seems to teach about these laws being harmful. Uh, for example, reflecting a by-works righteousness, uh, being a prod to highlight sin and to condemn, as he says in Romans 7, and no longer applicable, seeming in any real or significant way to Christians. Well, and here is the bottom line summary for those of you who have a very short attention span. Um, and depending on what your night was last night or what your day is like been today, uh, that may be short indeed. So here it is in a nutshell. Contrary to what most Christians believe and have been taught, the commandments and other teachings of the Old Testament, as understood and interpreted afresh and prophetically by Jesus, apply more than ever. Now, if you are a student of the Pauline epistles, um, that is a little bit jarring. It's almost as though we're having to take sides between Jesus on the one hand and Paul on the other hand. But that's what our sermon is about this afternoon. And I want to say that um, Jesus could not be more clear here. And so the challenge lies with trying to reconcile Paul with Jesus than Jesus with Paul. Um, not that any one part is less a part of the word of God than the other. And I want to draw attention before we get into the nitty gritty to a couple of verses which seem to me to summarize and help. And one is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 31. And um, I have, I've kind of joined them together in a way that, that, that's not particularly advisable, and I hope I haven't distorted Paul's meaning here. But notice the way in which um, apart from the law and the law are even mentioned in both Paul. Paul says in Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Now those words law and prophets are the same words that Jesus uses to describe the Old Testament. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then 10 verses later, he goes on and says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Heaven forbid, on, con on the contrary, we uphold the law. So I'm wanting us to take consolation as we embark upon this controversy by saying, here's a passage where Paul doesn't seem to be saying much different than Jesus is saying here. And also regarding what we're going to discover in the few weeks that follow, when we come to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 following through to 48, we're going to see that Jesus, um, although he here adheres to the strictest stroke of the law, that doesn't mean that he doesn't expand upon it in some ways. Indeed, in some cases, he seems to set apart a law. And it seems as though in Jesus's characterization of his disciples in Matthew 13, 52, he's saying essentially the same thing of himself. He says, therefore, every teacher of the law who's been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So what we're seeing here is Jesus affirming the old treasures. There's nothing wrong with them. They're treasure. They're in fact perfect. But Jesus is going to add some new treasures as well. You know, as the past few weeks as I have been um, going through my, uh, my sermons and reviewing them, it occurs to me that there are some terms that might be helpful to, uh, to apply, especially as I use outlines. And uh, one of them is even this little I-E and E-G. I-G is kind of academic shorthand for that is. I uh, put an equal sign where you see I-E if you're not used to it. And E-G is Latin for for example. 
But the ones that I want to draw attention to mostly are the ones that are in italics because they're going to come up in the substance of the sermon this afternoon. First of all, the word Torah, as most of us know, I think, is a synonym for the laws of the Old Testament and also for the Pentateuch. Uh, for uh, Pharisaic uh, Jews who represent Judaism today by and large, the first five books of the Old Testament had a superior authority to the prophets and the writings. So uh, that's what Torah means. And Jesus refers here in this passage that we're going to be looking at, the law and the prophets. Uh, and prophets actually refers to the second of three parts of the Old Testament. And it's, way, it's a way of Jesus saying, my understanding of Old Testament law is not just limited to the five books of Moses, but it extends to other prophetic books. Yes, other prophetic books, because the law was prophetic. Moses was a prophet. So Jesus is um, expanding the scope of uh, understanding Old Testament law right from the beginning. So the words law and prophets mean the Pentateuch plus those Old Testament books in which we find the prophets. Not only uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and those books after which the prophets are named, but also the books of Samuel and Kings, because Samuel was a prophet. And in the books of Kings as well, Elisha and Elijah are prophets. So the prophetic books in the Old Testament are understood a little bit differently and include what we would call the historical books in our Old Testament. And then finally, eschatological. Um, it's, a, it's a word that kind of rolls off the lips of seminary students, and I, we should probably abolish it because it's simply a fancy word for concerning future events. So that by way of orientation. Now let's move to that part of the sermon that concerns the apparent contradiction between Jesus and Paul. And after all, it's important. I mean, are we to follow the Old Testament laws? If so, how many? Or are we to um, uh, shun them because they simply remind us of our sin and condemn us? I want to suggest that the way towards reconciling the apparent contradiction between Jesus and Paul lies in understanding what the Pharisees believed. And here I'm going to give you a little exercise. Um, I'm taking a, a cue from the catechism class that Josiah and Deacon Marion and I taught earlier in the year where we did this kind of thing. And I think it's a fun exercise and uh, you don't have to get out your pen to do it. I want simply to remind you of what John 3.16 says. Fill in the blanks um, quietly as you continue to be muted. There are three of them. For God so loved that he gave that whoever Us. should not perish but have ever everlasting life. Now, um, last week I went to the footnotes and uh, I talked to people and they said, well, you know, the, the, the old line was pretty good, but you went to the footnotes and that's probably a little too much detail. But anyway, let me let me go bring you to the footnotes. And of course, if you answered, for God so loved the world, that would be good, that he gave his only son, Jesus, that would be good, so that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You're right on. But pretend for a minute that I get shoved aside from the pulpit and replaced by a Pharisee someone like Paul before the road to Damascus it says, I don't know what verse you're translating, but you've got it wrong. Let me tell you, my friend, this is what we Pharisaic Jews believe for God. So loved Israel that he gave the Torah both written and oral so that whoever obeys the Torah should not perish, but have eternal life. That was the Pharisaic context to which Jesus was speaking. 
And it's important to note what I have here at the bottom when I say the Torah as being both written and oral. You see, for the Pharisees, uh, the law did not just consist in what Moses had written um, and what we find in the Pentateuch, but it also represented those oral laws, the interpretation of those laws that had been continued down through the ages by Jewish sages. In Jesus's day, there was, in fact, um, someone who sat in the chair of Moses in the synagogue, and this was a person who uh, gave the oral interpretation of the law. And I mention this because as we continue in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus says, you have heard that it is said X, but I say Y, some people think that there Jesus is referring to the oral tradition of the rabbis. And what he's challenging is the oral tradition of the rabbis. Now, the rabbis had that oral tradition, but um, I think we'll see that probably the best understanding of those verses uh, is that Jesus is, in fact, uh, sticking with the Old Testament. So one of the ways in which Jesus differs from the Pharisees, and there are many ways in which he does so, is that Jesus uh, did not um, give credence to the oral tradition, at least on the same level that he did with the written tradition. Now, Matthew is a very Jewish book, and it's clear that Matthew's understanding of the law, as he reads Jesus, almost seems higher than that of Mark. And here we have another apparent contradiction. I think it's reasonable to suppose that when Matthew, who was writing primarily to a Jewish Christian audience, he referred to some of those laws that Jewish Christians were at liberty to continue. And there's one very telling place when Matthew, who probably had Mark's gospel before him, omits what Mark says in chapter 9, verse 17 of Mark, when Mark says, thereby Jesus declared all foods clean. Now that was so for the Gentiles, but Matthew, who has Jewish believers uh, who are still members of the old covenant, I think Matthew's wanting to say, well, uh, that may be so for the Gentiles, but, but my understanding of Jesus is that it didn't rule those things out. So here again, my point is, is that we simply see Jesus holding to a high understanding. Now note one thing before we move beyond, and that is a point in common between the whoever's, whoever uh, believes in him and whoever obeys the Torah, both of these presume grace as a basis. Um, you know, if you were to ask me, how are you saved? I could say, by putting your faith in Jesus. And somebody would say, well, that sounds like a work to me. And I would say, no, no, it's all about grace. Grace precedes my faith in Jesus. Grace is what prompts me to put my faith in Jesus. Um, a Jew who properly understood the Old Testament, and it seems as though, according to Paul, there weren't many who lived at the time, uh, they would have said the same thing about obeying the Torah. Because, of course, the Old Testament, think of the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament begins by saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. I mean, I've already saved you. Now keep my commandments. So what lies in common in both cases, despite their predominant differences, lies in the fact that Jews and Christians, if they have their theology right, would affirm that we have ever only been saved by grace. So um, notice in our little uh, John 316 contest, and this leads us to the contradiction that seems to exist between faith in Christ on the one hand and adhering to the Torah on the other hand. We have Torah um, and Jesus um, 
opposite one another. Uh, here we have believe in this, uh, so that whoever believes in Jesus or whoever embodies the Torah. Uh, let me just see if I can catch up with my own notes here. Um, I've already talked about how um, the Pharisees gave authority to traditional interpretations of the law. And the other thing that I wanted to add for an understanding of Romans 7, 7 to 15, and um, perhaps another place in Paul as well, is where Paul seems to, to talk about the commandments in a negative way. It's, it's as though he's saying, you know, the commandments are there to show us how sinful we are. And they're just kind of like a, um, they hound us to hell, as it were. And uh, scholars have identified that this was one of the teachings of the Pharisees or something close to it. That uh, the Pharisees believed that um, for them, the law was redemptive and valuable, but for any Gentile who wasn't prepared to forsake anything, everything and follow the laws, that in fact, they did the same. They simply uh, held up a, a guilty sign before the Gentiles and said, this is why you are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul retains that theology when he comes to write his epistles. So the first thing we've done in our path towards reconciling the contradiction is to understand something of what the Pharisees believed. The second thing that we want to do is we want to apply the contrast between faith in Christ and obedience to the law to a crucial question. And that is, what identifies you as a member of the covenant people of God. In other words, um, how do you know someone is a Jew in the first century? How did you know that someone was a Christian in the first century? Well, the Pharisaic answer came like this. And in a minute, we're going to see faith in Christ and obedience to the law kind of coming together and running past each other. So you'll notice that in the outline where I have the Pharisaic answer dependent on when, their view is, for the present, the way that people know that we are saved by grace on the terms of the Old Testament covenant is we scrupulously keep the Torah. And that's what the Pharisees were all about. They were champions of this. They were champions of the written Torah and had also built a boundary around it in the form of the oral Torah to make sure that they didn't ever encroach upon one of God's holy laws, our virtuous and noble aspiration um, as inadequate as Jesus came to say that it was, rightly so. But the Pharisees also believed that the Messiah would come in the future. And so for now, you keep the law. But in the future, um, our Torah obedience will be vindicated when the Messiah comes. The Messiah will come and he'll say, congratulations, uh, folks, you kept the law. You are my people. And now that I'm the Messiah here, come, I'm in fact going to um, fulfill the law. I'm going to teach you more about the law. Well, that was Paul's thinking as a Pharisee before he experienced his road to Damascus conversion. <laughs> but then the road to Damascus convert changed everything in Paul, or at least a lot. <clears throat> and Paul undergoes a paradigm shift. And that's the third step in seeing these two things be reconciled. You see, for Paul, on the road to Damascus, he met the Messiah. This future individual had come and met him and told him he was wrong, really. And so uh, from Paul's perspective, after the road to Damascus, he saw that the future Messiah had come into the present. And whom did he vindicate? The Pharisees? <laughs> no. But surprise of all surprises... 
Jesus vindicated non-Pharisaic Jewish fishermen, Gentiles, and tax collectors. On what basis? Certainly not their obedience to the law, far from it, but rather faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the paradigm shift that Paul goes through. He went from believing that obedience to the law was an important sign, and he was prepared to persecute Christians for, for saying otherwise, that it was a faith in Christ. And now he comes to believe that faith in Jesus Christ is what marks you as a Christian. And may I just say this afternoon, that um, if you are new to the Christian faith, or you are exploring it, or maybe you've been going to a church, be it Anglican or otherwise, your whole life, I want to say that putting your faith in Jesus Christ is something that you're prompted to do by the Holy Spirit and that you should respond to God by doing. The sooner the better, because it marks you and sets you out as a Christian. You're not saved by going to church. You're not saved by being baptism, although that's an important marker as well. No, you are brought into the family of God and saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you belong in that category where this is new news to you this afternoon, please pay little attention to what else I say. And right now, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. Believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sins and put your trust in him. And accept salvation as a gift from God to you. So the Christian answer to what marks us as believers is faith in Jesus Christ. But more fully, in light of Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, it's faith in Jesus, who as the Messiah here tells us to obey his laws and teachings, which are fully akin to the spirit of the Old Testament law, and in fact, fulfill them. If we just go back to this uh, part of what the Pharisees believed, they believed that when the Messiah came, many of them did anyway, as, as, as well as others in rabbinic tradition, that when the Messiah come, he would illumine the Torah. So the Messiah has come from the future into the present, has overlooked obedience to the Torah, has upheld faith in himself, but at the same time has upheld the majesty and the permanence and the integrity and the authority and the um, importance of keeping the Old Testament law. So this brings us finally to the question of what then is the role of the Old Testament law for the Christian? Well, by way of summary statement, keeping the law is certainly not a prerequisite to salvation, although it is a necessary corollary when it comes to the teachings of Jesus as he understood the law. But it's not a prerequisite to salvation in the sense of it being a works-based righteousness. Uh, you know, that's hard for us to swallow, especially if you've come from uh, an underprivileged background or you have um, come to Canada as an immigrant or your, your ancestors did. And one of the ways that they made it in Canada was by working hard. And they weren't in the business of taking any handouts. So this whole idea of um, getting what you work for is woven into our understanding as many Christians, but it's not the basis upon which we are saved. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, and here again, you'll see apart from the law, 
uh, and grace and works coming together. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And here's where works come in. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what is the role of the law, the Old Testament law, for the Christian? Well, as interpreted by Jesus, and we're going to take some further clues from Matthew 5, 17 to 20 in a minute, our law-keeping is a necessary corollary to the saving faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And as Jesus says in verse 20, there's no getting around it. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll have no part in the kingdom. That's scary. We'll get to the scary part in a minute. But let's take a look now at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, and notice a few things in it. Um, first of all, as verse 18 makes clear, Jesus is not taking anything away from the Old Testament law. Now, Matthew probably uh, recognized the importance of having Jesus make this qualification right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Because next week, you're going to hear Jesus fiddling with the law, as it were. Um, he's not taking the law necessarily at face value, but he's expanding on it. He's going deeper with it. He's going to a spiritual sense. And in some cases, he even seems to set aside the law, as he did, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, where he said, you know, Moses allowed you to write a certificate of divorce, but from my future-oriented kingdom perspective, where God has free reign in your midst, there is no such thing as divorce. I won't permit it. So Jesus, in some cases, is even setting aside um, some aspects of the law. Verse 17, Jesus speaks, as I've intimated already, about the law and the prophets. And by adding the prophets, I think Jesus is saying, my understanding of keeping the Old Testament law is a development from the Pentateuch. And I'm taking into account the ways in which I am the fulfillment of Old Testament expectation, broadly speaking. Clearly, this is what Matthew has shown us from the very beginning. I mean, we've learned that there are a myriad of ways in which Jesus, uh, by his life, uh, by his teachings, by his experience, by his deeds, fulfills this and that aspect of Old Testament prophecy. So one thing we can understand about the law, it's not in contradiction from the Old Testament, is more broadly based than the Pentateuch alone. And then there are two important words uh, or phrases that come uh, to, uh, to be important. One is the meaning fulfill in verse 17. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And the question is, what does the meaning fulfill mean? How is the meaning fulfilled best understood? Well, the word fulfill can mean a number of different things. It can mean to do, it can mean to act out, um, it can mean to obey. Um, but most scholars, and I agree with them, is um, that the, the, past, this, the word fulfill is best understood in context as referring to a kind of a prophetic culmination. This is why I translated what, the, what I did at the very beginning. I have not come to abolish, but to prophetically culminate, to prophetically culminate. So Jesus is saying, 
that he is part of the fulfillment of the Old Testament itself. And the word fulfill means uh, round out. Um, Jesus and his person and his teachings are that to which the entire Old Testament has pointed. So that's what it means to fulfill. And that word fulfill is used, uh, that's the word that's used earlier in Matthew, in most cases at least, to talk about the fulfillment of this prophecy and that. So Jesus's fulfillment is important to reckon because it doesn't mean simply echoing the laws as they were understood before, but that Jesus is the fulfiller of the law. He's that to which the whole Old Testament was pointing. And this gives him as both the son of God, um, the prophet of Moses, the son of David, and as uh, Israel's bringer of good news, uh, it, it puts him in a unique position to be uh, a fresh interpreter of the law, the one that the Pharisees were looking forward to. Next is the meaning what until all is accomplished means. Now, this is really important, and it certainly leaves room for us to see how Jesus is, uh, could be teaching at the same time that nothing from the Old Testament law is to be uh, set aside, um, but yet he does, because he says, nothing from the Old Testament will be passed away or set aside until all is accomplished. And the question is, when is all accomplished? Does it simply mean when heaven and earth pass away? Is In other words, is it synonymous for what we see in the first part of the verse, for as long as heaven and earth remain? Not an iota, not a smidge will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Uh, that's possible. Uh, but most people, and again, I, I, uh, I would favor this interpretation, view it as being um, a fulfillment, or it's the law pertains until all is accomplished. And Jesus is the one who in his life and teaching, his death and his resurrection, accomplishes what the Old Testament was pointing to. So um, elsewhere, Jesus, when he was talking about John the Baptist, um, he said that John the Baptist was kind of the last prophet in a particular age. And then he talks about a time between John the Baptist and himself when the commandments of the law and laws pertaining to the kingdom are about to come into place. So um, some people feel as though um, the Old Testament law, as good as it was and as perfect as it was, um, and as, as, as continually relevant as it is, um, came to a point where Jesus is now in a position to have authority over it and to reinterpret it, which is why some of the laws can be set aside. We're getting close to the end, and we're getting to a point that's even more practical than what we've seen before. So we've talked about what the meaning of fulfill is. Now we've talked about what the meaning of all is accomplished is. Well, let's take that word all and raise the question that uh, you will ask if you haven't asked already as a Christian. How many of those laws am I to keep? Am I to keep all of them? Uh, well, the answer is no, certainly not all of them. Um, there were those laws, for example, that served as covenantal or ethnic markers for the Jewish people, such as circumcision. Uh, these were well and good for Jewish believers. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, as we have seen. Uh, so those laws are good, but they would pertain, um, if anything, to Jewish followers of Jesus. But we are not Jews. We are saved. We are brought into the kingdom as Gentiles by, by God's grace. Uh, but we dare not, need not, and should not pretend to be Jews. 
In the Old Testament as well, there were food laws that related to um, the boundary between Israel and the Gentiles. I'm going to say this quickly, and you might, you might have questions about it um, later, but um, this is what lies behind Peter receiving a command uh, to eat unclean foods. In the book of Leviticus, those foods were clean and unclean as a way of showing a difference between God's holy covenant people, the Israelites, and the Gentiles. Now that Jesus Christ has come and included the Gentiles in his kingdom people, the distinction is no longer significant. So even in Acts, uh, where food laws are set aside, there's a reason for it. It's not like, oh, the Old Testament doesn't matter. No, those were specific markers of the purity of the Jewish people, the, the Hebrews, the covenant people in Old Testament times, but those boundaries have now been broken down, which is why God can appear to have changed his mind. A different time has come. The Gentiles have come into the kingdom. Therefore, those foods are not important. It can also include the laws that have been superseded by the ministry and teaching of Jesus. Obviously, as we learn from Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10, for example, uh, the Old Testament laws regarding preparing sacrifices and making sacrifices for sin is no longer necessary because Jesus was a once-for-all perfect sacrifice uh, for our sins. And then there are some laws that have been adjusted in the light of Christ. And one example is Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, where a divorce, a divorce certificate is recorded in the law as having been allowed by Moses. But Jesus says, no, in the ideal kingdom which is to come and which has come in me, where sin uh, ought not to have free reign, um, he, he, he removes um, that, um, that escape clause uh, for divorce. Now, as we come to, uh, as we come to a close, I simply want to draw attention to the force of verse 20 of chapter 5. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And at the end of this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount, um, we are told uh, that uh, we uh, have to be perfect. Uh, Matthew 5, I was in John 5 for a second, hang on. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, are you perfect? Um, <laughs> if you are, give me a call. We'll give you an award. Um, I'm certainly not perfect. None of us is. So why would Jesus tell us to do this? I mean, it's impossible. Well, just before the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> Jesus came to a person who was blind. And uh, he said, see, and the person saw. He came to a person who was lame and unable to walk. And he said, walk, and the person could walk. A person who was deaf, and Jesus said, hear, and you can hear. A person who was dead, and Jesus says, come alive. And you, being a dead person, do the impossible. So in other words, we're being asked to do the impossible here, and that is an admission. We are being asked to do the impossible here. But it's not independently of the redeeming, saving grace of God, who comes to the poorest of the poor and says, yours is the kingdom of God. Salvation, my friends, is a gift. But that does not mean we are not to follow the teachings of Jesus and to supersede the teachings of the Pharisees. Let me add one more little point that ties into this idea about grace. 
And it relates to uh, a, a book that uh, Keith Ganser's future professor, present professor perhaps, if he's in Vancouver, um, uh, will be uh, learning from. John Barclay has written a book called Paul and the Gift. And he underscores the truth that we are saved by grace. We are saved unconditionally. But Barclay makes a, uh, an important point that in the first century, um, I think in both Jewish and Christian and, and in Gentile cultures, it doesn't mean you didn't have any obligations. Um, you were given money unconditionally, um, like say one of uh, the great composers was, you know, they had a benefactor who gave them money, uh, but what were they supposed to do with it? They were supposed to compose a symphony. Um, and so in Paul and the Gift, Barclay has uh, shown us that this whole idea that you could uh, believe in Jesus, you're saved by on, on the basis of grace, and then live whatever life you chose is just completely inconsistent, even with the teaching of the New Testament. So um, following the law and obeying Jesus's commands are a necessary, obligatory corollary. Uh, if It's not that we have to, we're saved before then, but there is a sense of commitment and obligation that comes with it independent of us being saved by it. Let me finally, as we come to a close, um, give you a paraphrase and a summary statement. I like the paraphrase that comes from um, a commentator named R.T. France, who's a very famous evangelical Old Testament scholar. And he is uh, putting, um, he's translating or paraphrasing Jesus's teachings as follows. I have not come to set aside the Old Testament, but to bring the fulfillment to which it pointed. For no part of it can ever be set aside but all must be fulfilled as it is now being fulfilled in my ministry and teaching. That's where the until all is accomplished part comes in. So a Christian who repudiates any part of the Old Testament is an inferior Christian. The consistent Christian will be guided by the Old Testament and will teach others accordingly. And that is the Old Testament as has been uh, understood, interpreted, and prophetically illumined by Jesus Christ. But a truly Christian attitude is not the legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees, but a deeper commitment to do the will of God, uh, without which no one can enter the kingdom, um, as the following verses, which will come next week, uh, will illustrate. Let me get back to the basics, because we've gone through quite a bit having to do with Pharisees and Paul and everything else. And uh, Roger, this can maybe be your summary statement for the small groups in the week to come. Friends, recall that the basis of salvation for everyone, Jew and Gentile, has always been the unmerited grace of God. For Christians, an indispensable sign that they've understood and embraced salvation by God's grace is faith in Christ, shown by obedience to the updated and enriched Old Testament-based teachings and commandments of Christ. These laws do not include, however, those in the Old Testament that were ethnic markers for Jews, such as circumcision, circumcision, or that have obviously been superseded by the work of Christ, such as laws pertaining to sacrifices. The same applies to Jewish followers of Jesus, except that they're still entitled to apply the Old Testament ethnic markers for Jews. So a Jewish follower of Jesus, perfectly appropriate for them to be circumcised if they wish. So I hope that helps us to... Um, uh, reconcile and understand how the teachings of um, both Jesus 
and Paul um, can be uh, reconciled. My friends, the law has come, it is good, and we are to follow the law and be obedient to it because that is what Christ has taught. And his fuller, rounder understanding of the Old Testament law remains authoritative, although it is not the basis for our salvation. Amen.